All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, Brett and I are excited today to be sitting down with the one, the only Tom Lotus. So What's we, up, guys? We are here on campus of Rush, uh, best hospital in, in the United States, probably, right? I mean, that's the... Uh, orthopedics, we're up there. Uh, I think we're in the top five in the nation right now. It's pretty dang yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, so what makes Tom's position here so unique is he's basically the gatekeeper for spine surgeons, which is so amazing. And so we're, we're going to get into that, but uh, he also is... Uh, uh, heavily influenced in the MDT world. He's uh, uh, heavily influenced uh, from the Prague background. You have a huge Prague uh, school background. I know you and Brett went to went overseas quite a bit together early on. Uh, I know there's some good stories in there that maybe would be for after the podcast. After the podcast, definitely. <laughs> well, one great intro story. When I first met Tom, I was helping Terry Elder out for an MPI seminar in St. Louis. Well, he brought Tom down to help out. So I'd never met Tom before. So we meet for the first time on this Saturday we end up staying up all night. We literally woke up outside on the patio on lawn chairs. That's the first, we were fast friends, like right off the bat. Semi-trucks going by, <laughs> beeping, it was yeah. our alarm clock. We're like, what? <laughs> what just happened? I think we got tossed out of the lobby, too, because we had alcohol, so we decided to pull the lawn chairs up. Yeah, That's it was, uh, so that was kind of the intro, and uh and Tom, you got a great background. I mean, you've just basically dipped your toes in so many different things. So you started, Terry was a huge influence on you. Yeah, Terry. We have, actually, Terry's on the podcast tomorrow. So awesome. we'll, we'll be meeting with Terry. And then you got influenced uh, with the Prague School, as did I early on. Right. And then, you know, as your career went on, I think you became enamored with MDT and the principles of uh, McKinsey. I think that's kind of our jumping off point right here is what. What about MDT made you just literally go all in there? Um, I, I think it was it was the um, and when I say the word basics and, and the, the the simplicity of it, there's it's really not the simplicity of it, but the basics of their classification, right? It's just like you capture this classification, you understand how these this condition behaves, and it just makes sense, and it with really good reliability, it just kind of guides you down a path. Uh, for that patient and having the quick results um, was just uh, and self empowering the patient. I mean, that to me was um, what was the ticket to go all in on it. Mm-hmm. Who in the McKinsey world mm-hmm. like turned that light on for you? I mean, who was like the Terry Elder for you and MPI, but who was that for uh, MDT? And uh, it can be a couple names. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple, there's definitely a couple names. I mean, God, the list goes on on the people that have influenced me. Um, but within the McKinsey world, um, the first would have been Melissa Kolsky. Yeah. Melissa Kolsky, Annie O'Connor, um, my relationship with the, at the time, Rehab Institute of Chicago, seeing what the number one rehab institute in the world was doing. Mm-hmm. Like, that was their basis. Like, that is, everybody came through was McKenzie assessed, even if it was a PM&R doc. Like, they had to understand, they sat through McKenzie. with McKenzie, 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 and then they broke free from there. But then once I got entrenched into the McKenzie world, of taking the classes over and over, um, you know, of course, you know, Stephen Hefner has got a place in my heart because, you know, he was a Cairo, he's a diploma with Cairo. He kind of took me by the hand and he introduced me to the rest of the MDT world, the international world of MDT. And, you know, once we get into that, it's like the Richard Rosedales, the Dana Greens, um, those Richard Rosedale, Dana Green from the PT side um, were a huge, huge influence on me. How come MDT just kind of remains to be kind of the best kept secret that exists? Like in physical therapy, if we talk to like an, an average physical therapist and we throw those names out, a lot of times people don't know who they are or right. even like in the Cairo world. And the, I guess the second part of that question is why is it also the most bastardized technique that exists? What, I mean, what, what's the reasoning behind those two things, do you think? I think uh, there's probably many reasons, right? Um, but I think like the big one is is the simplicity of it, right? I, I think it's it's bastardized because everybody thinks it's so simple and it's just extension. Just press up, right? It's just press up yeah. and go. Oh, oh, I did I, I did McKenzie. Well, what do you mean you? What McKenzie did you do? What what is that? What does that even mean? Well, I did my press ups. I mean, we can even go back to Cairo school and think about the examinations we had to take. Yeah, PT there'd be a quite <laughs> P, the, the, like well, what, what is McKenzie? It's like extension. Mm-hmm. Like no, McKenzie's not extension. Um, and, and you could basically get rid of our orthopedic Cairo classes and just put in-range assessment, in-range assessment in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, once you once you understand how that condition behaves and you classify the you classify that patient, it's like is it end range loading? 
And if we have the progressive forces, there's our manipulation. Or are we dealing with the dysfunction? Okay, we've got our, we have our tools of how to treat a tissue. We could load it over and over and remodel it. We could assist it and use a catalyst. We use a little bit of myofascial work or this or that or different techniques that we have. But at least we know where to plug that technique at. Um, another thing is, is like, you know, I, I think it, it, it kind of gets bastardized too is because within the PT world, it's just like, I think people are just surprised at how simplistic it could be. Mm-hmm. If you take a really good history, yeah. you take a really good history and a really good assessment, this is what you need. You don't need more. And I think a lot of times, especially in our country, you know, whether it's a Cairo or a PT or a PM&R, we're looking to give more. Right? We need more. It can't be that easy. We need more. Mm-hmm. We need to lay that out. What's this muscle doing? What's that muscle doing? We need more. Right? And you see it on the billing side. It goes all the way to the insurance side, like with big corporations. The more time a patient spends in the clinic, the more I bill. Right? So there's that part of it. Well, we can't just do McKenzie because the patient just did 120 press-ups. Like, we need to bill more. Well, I think you guys both saw today. I mean, I've had many patients doing 120 press-ups today, right? Right. I've had patients laying in flexion rotation for 20 minutes. Yeah, I'll come back. I'm going to go in with another patient. Let's see what happens, right? You know, so I think there's all different reasons why it's bastardized. I think the, the big one is, like, I think people think it's too simple and, like, oh, I did McKenzie. They don't have an understanding that McKenzie is not a therapy, mm-hmm. right? You know, this is why I say, like, I mean, I was in China two years ago lecturing to spine surgeons, and I literally stood up there in front of, like, 700 spine surgeons, and I said, McKenzie never fails. Ever. And I'll say that here on this mm-hmm. podcast. It never fails. It never fails because it's nothing more than an assessment. Right. Like, now, my loading strategy, you may be irreducible, but it hasn't failed because I classified you. You're irreducible. You need to go to the next step. You know, and that I think is the beauty of it, and that's what people don't understand about McKenzie, and that's the, one of the most frustrating things to a McKenzie practitioner when people bastardize it. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, it goes on. It's financial. It's the what people think is the simplicity aspect of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where we, else to go on. That. Well, we've been um, really lucky to we've been around Scott or Bowie quite a bit, and then Mark Miller recently. And what I'm learning is where other people might have classified something as an other, they don't have a classification. They can like sniff out that derangement that no one else would, and they can find that exact you know alternative force or direction that other people can't. So, would you mind commenting on like in your journey in MDT, like what's making these really really top flight uh, clinicians? Like what what do they have that the others are not doing? Do you think? Staying true to the principles. Like, I mean, honestly, like, if that's one thing is like, what I, what we see a lot is, what I see a lot is when I get a patient and it's like, and they said, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I'm like, okay, well, let's do it again. It's staying the path to the principle, right? And changing the load and changing the forces and changing the vectors and being open-minded that you may have, you may have to switch things up. Like for example, a derangement in the shoulder, like something's gonna respond here and then we may have to switch a direction. But what we, you know, we don't like to rely, in the past we'd rely on these patterns, right? Like, well, we see this pattern, so we're gonna do this. But the patterns always don't hold true. So, but if you understand the principles of what a derangement is supposed to do, okay, and how it's supposed to respond and the behavior of the derangement and the behavior of a dysfunction or the behavior of an A&R, right? And ruling out the spine before you go to the extremities. Those are the principles, right? What, how it behaves. If you, if you really abide by that and you stick to that, you're going to have to tinker with things. And a lot of times when, where I see clinicians and therapists go astray is when we're in the yellow light, right? When people are in the green light, what I mean by green light is like centralization is happening. Okay, I can train my, my five-year-old son. Do more press-ups, do more side glides, do more flexion rotations, right? Because they say that it's centralizing. That's good. That's what we want. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, like I give the analogy of the other people in the field. It's like when you go to a running store, right, and you say, okay, I need to be in the best fitting shoe for me, right? And they say, okay, well, I'm going to start you out and we're going to watch your gait. They throw everybody in a, sta- a, a stable shoe. Everybody's gait looks stable in a stable shoe. Right. But me- the, the good running stores are going to strip you down out of socks and everything and watch you walk and say, let's start you out here, right? 
So if everything looks good, the green light is easy to go. Mm-hmm. If everything looks bad, we know when to put the brakes on too. Mm-hmm. Oh, the symptoms are getting worse. It's peripheralizing. Oh, you got caught equine syndrome? We got to stop, mm-hmm. right? But when you're in the middle, like, you know, Mark says it really well. It's like, you know, when you're in the middle, that's when we fiddle, mm-hmm. right? It's the yellow light. Like, I'm going to change direction. I'm going to change the load. I'm going to decrease the load. I'm going to increase the load. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try that. Oh, what's happening? It's localizing. Okay, we're going to keep going, mm-hmm. right? So I really understanding that principle of how each classification behaves is the key. And once you're in that yellow, like, you just keep fiddling with it. It's crazy, I mean, for our listeners out there. I mean, we think that the worst patient is when, you know, somebody comes back to us and they're peripheralized or they're worse. But actually, the worst patient is the patient that's the same. Like, their yeah. symptoms are, because then, we, you know, we don't know where to go where to go with it. I mean, we had that patient today, you know, you know the, the one to two out of ten patient that was considering getting a surgical consult. It's like, you know, I was getting frustrated because I wasn't getting an answer. I was loading and loading and loading. So what did we do? Sat him down, flex. Mm-hmm. Like, we're gonna get an answer out of that. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to have an answer. If I don't understand how that, I, so I tell the patient all the time, even if I don't know, go home and do this. Mm-hmm. Right. And come on back and collect that data, all right? And give me the data so I can, Mark says this too. Like, I'm gonna assess the data. I'm gonna keep loading you until I figure something out. So if you're not gonna get better, we're gonna try this. If you're not gonna get worse, we're gonna try this. Even if you come back worse, I now know the condition can change. Mm-hmm. If the condition can change, whether it's good or bad, we can figure something out. But if the condition's not changing. Mm-hmm. And Scott always says, he says, you know, the curses of MDT are not enough reps, um, not enough, uh, not to end range. And then the third one would be, you know, abandoning the sagittal plane too soon. But the one that I want to focus on with you is um, the end range idea, because I think there's a lot of, uh, marriage with chiropractic, MPI, joint play, it in range manipulation, in that you know in that area there. So could you maybe talk about like the perfect blend maybe between like the principles in MPI and MDT and like how that could all go together, be married together. It's a package, right? Right. I mean, I, like I'm glad you brought that up because I mean I remember going back 10, 12, 13 years, like when I started the McKenzie route, and like. You know, you kind of went the DNS route. I kind of went the McKenzie route, even though we had the same beginnings, right? right? Mm-hmm. And I remember coming back and being like, Brett, like, this group over here is talking about what we're talking about in MPI. Right. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm like, this derangement is nothing different than our primary fixation that Len Faye's always talked about. Right. I mean, because if you look at the definition of a derangement, it's a... Movement obstruction. It's a movement obstruction. Mm-hmm. Like, I could sit there, I'll never forget sitting in a class, uh, a CSU class with Dana Green and Dana, I was getting ready because I was thinking about going on for my diploma at the time of like, he's like, okay, what is the definition of a derangement? And I'm like, man, I got these books memorized. I'm gonna impress <laughs> one of the most senior faculty. I raised my hand, I stood up and I'm like, verbatim from May and McKenzie's book. He's like, yeah, maybe. I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? Like that is verbatim. Like if you're saying maybe to that, I'm not gonna go into my diploma and fail. Like, then I can't go to the diploma, right? right? So he went on and on and on. And then finally he said, a derangement is nothing more than a healthy joint that is not moving the right way. And it's right. unhappy. Well, that's a primary fixation. Right, right. So if you look at a primary fixation, if you listen to like Len Fay and Mark and all these guys in MPI talk, is like, you're going to have an obstructed movement, which a derangement is. Mm-hmm. You're going to have end range pain in that obstructed movement, right? And if you find that primary fixation, if you manipulate it, you're gonna have a rapid response, which you're gonna have with a derangement. It's the same thing, right? And the difference is, is like with MPI, you're putting your hands on and you're, you're palpating as we're with a derangement in the McKenzie world, you're just listening to symptom response. You're moving a you're bunch. You're moving them a bunch. But you could, you could use MDT principles off what you learned on your joint plan without even asking a patient where the well, symptoms Exactly, are. yeah. And, that's and like, I'm surprised MDT doesn't talk about that. I mean, they have, Oh gosh, they could go so far. So, oh my gosh. So deep into that, right? And it's just like, you know, it, it's like, you know, when they get into manipulating the the site, like they talk about that. Mm. Like, you know, the overpressures and their joint play and stuff like that when they get into their fellowships, they talk about that. But like like I remember coming back to you saying, like, like this this is a marriage that needs to happen. No, like that's th- perfect. this is this is something. And like when I used to teach with MPI with the with the in, in the Cairo schools. You know, I would say derangement is no different than our primary fixation. We're talking about the same thing, but it's semantics. We're using different language. Yes, yep. 
coming at it from different angles. Different angles. Mm-hmm. We're really the same angle. Same though. angle. Same different angle, but just time. different different language. Yeah. Speaking of uh, principles on McKenzie, you're going to love this story. Uh, Mark was telling us that, you know, he started fiddling with the extremities with Scott, and he's like, you know, like, he's having this epiphany moment. He's like, oh, my gosh. He's like, we're moving these joints. We're finding out, like, I mean, it's even There's better direct, than this. Yeah, side. directional preference in the in the. In so the he calls up Robin, and uh, he's like, he's so excited. He's telling, you're not going to believe this, Robin. Like, we figured all this stuff out. Same thing that you were talking about in the spinal. Chapter thing. one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Page four, Miller. Page four, Miller. <laughs> Read it. It will apply to all joints in the human body. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Such yeah. an amazing story. So. And actually, I mean, on that topic, like. I mean, that, like, being here in the hospital, like, so where I was brought in for the spine, like, it's been great. And, like, the you know, we see it, like, because we're funneling people out that really need surgery, and it's efficient for the surgeons. But, like, the sports medicine orthos started seeing, like, what was happening with, like, some of our shoulder patients and some of our knee patients. And, like, I mean, McKenzie's starting to explode within this setting, even with the extremity. Sure. Too. And I actually think it's just as powerful or more powerful in extremities. Mm-hmm. Results are quicker, I think. Right. In the extremities. So now that you've really, you know, you've been in this for so long, do you now agree with the McKinsey classification, the derangement's a no-brainer? We know that. So they also have dysfunction, they have posture, and of course they have other, mm-hmm. other making up the second most common, you know, category that, that exists. So do you think MDT should be looking to maybe expand, whether that's the other or dysfunction, or do you think, uh, are you happy with it? I'm happy with it, and what I do like... What I'm what we're seeing with the McKenzie within the McKenzie world, you know, uh, pre-pandemic, was their other is just not other anymore, mm-hmm. right? Their other is starting to encompass like some of these affective problems that's going on, you know, maybe some more central sensitivity, and they're starting to subclassify some of these things. Well, I think why that's so critical too, and I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. You have two categories of chronic pain. You have chronic pain that's got affective pain, central sensitization, motor anomic, that whole category. Then you have a group of chronic pain patients that just haven't seen the right therapist or clinician or chiro, right? So part of MDT's power is to take these people to, to basically determine whether they are true biopsychosocial or whether they just haven't had the right treatment. Yeah, I mean, it, it's no different than central sensitivity. Like we talked to Annie, which I know you guys discussed a little bit with her yesterday, is like, you know, the central sensitivities, like she'll explain to you is, is the derangement of the brain, mm-hmm. right? where word selection and the right treatment will flip that switch that fast, just like a derangement will flip it that way. I mean, eight out of 10 of my patients that walk in here that I see is like, they've been to therapy, they've been this, they've been that, they've, this is our last chance, blah, blah, blah. And nobody's selected the right classification. Nobody classifies, first of all, right? right. right? They just hit them with 10 different things and all oh, you didn't work. And then you hit them with the right thing. And all of a sudden you see on the outcome scores, the ODI dropped, the keel dropped, the yellow flag drop, confidence going through the roof, and centralization happening. And no longer is there fear avoidance, and they've got the confidence in the world. And they're like, that chronic pain, to me, like I like to call that almost like, it is a chronic pain, but it's a pseudo-chronic pain. Right, because chronic know? pain just means you've had pain for more than three months. Right, so yeah, like, like, so it's like, it's almost like, I like to call it as like, I'm sorry the system has failed you chronic pain. <laughs> right. Right, you know, because if you were caught at the right time by the right therapist or right doctor and you were classified properly, all this other shit should have never happened. Right. Exactly. You know, because once you're in pain for that three-month period or over and over, you've had failed treatments, you've had this procedure, you've had that procedure, you've had this image showed to you, somebody scared the living shit out of you with this, you've had a surgery maybe, and nothing's happening. And you're getting worse, and your social emotional life is getting worse, and your marriage is getting worse, and you can't hang out with your friends because you're in pain. Well, dude, give me the pills too. <laughs> like, right, let's end it. Right. Yeah, your you brain's know, gonna change. Your brain's gonna change. But those people, sometimes those people, like we 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 can't forget about the simplicity of searching for that derangement, because a lot of times, like I said, like 80 percent of the people, you find that, and boom, it flips, and you explain and educate the reliability of centralization, and you got them. Tom, I saw you do this many times a day, and I was really impressed with it. You almost did like a reverse pathoanatomical diagnosis with them, meaning like you showed them their imaging. And whereas like a lot of people would then, you know, use scare tactics and things like that, but you actually use the imaging to tell them they're fine. Yeah. And I thought that was really amazing because the patients really – 
we all know that patients are enamored with their imaging to start with, but you are able to educate them and basically just tell these patients, you know, your, your image looks fine. And you could just almost see them already getting better just by educating off the imaging in the right way. I think the point is the imaging isn't necessarily the problem. It's the education. It's the imaging. education of it. Yeah. yeah. I, and like it's, I'm glad that you picked up on that saying that I did a good job communicating that because it's, it's, a, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's a big problem. And not only that, I remember in private practice it was a problem. But now, I mean, I'm lucky enough like they have everything land the right way where – like I'm in the number five orthopedic center in the nation. Like these are orthopedic surgeons. So to get into these surgeons, you have MRIs, you have X-rays. That's what they're trained to do. Like I'm not saying it's bad, right? Mm -hmm. You it's know, reality. but it's the reality of it. So like, when, if a surgeon sends me a patient, they're like, yeah, it's non-surgical, go see Lotus. Like, they've already went over their MRI, and they see the degeneration and this and that. Mm -hmm. So I have to be able to. Like it was always a problem I had in the very beginning. It's like, how am I gonna do this? Because it's almost like they're already set up, but I have to flip that, right? right? So they wanna come in, they wanna go over their images. I got my images, there's $3,000 on my insurance. I wanna look, see what my images. <laughs> I have to show them that pathoanatomical image, but I have to relate to them. The beautiful thing about this image is the sensitivity. You don't have a cancer. You don't have a fracture. You got some disc changes. You got some arthritis. And how can I take that and flip it to the positive for the patient? And I always wondered, like, you know, because it's only me down here right now, like, how does that come across? You know, so I'm glad, you know, it, it, it is, it's something that needs to be addressed. And we, you know, as Annie always says, like, you know, with my time with Annie over at RIC is like, you know, word selection matters. Mm -hmm. You know, you can either hurt somebody with your word selection, you could harm somebody or you could heal somebody, right, depending on how you use that word selection. And, you know, one of the biggest things I've ever seen my learning experiences is sitting down with Annie O'Connor and a, VA, uh, a VAS at 10 out of 10 and ODI through the roof and her not touch a patient and just explain pain to them and f fill it out again. It was like down 90%. She's just the best in the world at that. I mean, well, I mean, that, so I mean, that's an art, you know, it's yeah. just like, you know, you guys talked to Robert yesterday too. Robert Lardner's got an art, like Robert Lardner, like, you know, he's an artist. Right. Annie O'Connor's an artist. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like these are people that like down the line, the next generations are going to be looking up to, mm -hmm. right? It's an art. You can't teach that. That's just, their right. personality, what they have. So the second part of this we'd like to talk about is how do you, you know, like, because I mean, there's a lot of young, you know, clinicians that would love to be in this situation here. So how have you been able to network to get yourself to the, this point to where you're a practicing Cairo at, uh, at Rush? Uh, it was patience. It was patients. You know, I think one of the big th problems is like... Not treating patients, be like waiting for your moment. Waiting for the yeah, moment, right. yeah, yeah. And getting to know the right people. Right. Right, you know, just coming out of school, out of PT school, out of Cairo school, like there's a lot of young docs that are coming out and they're like, I deserve to be here. <laughs> like, that's where I yeah. want to be. Like, how do you do that? Give me the connection. Like, it doesn't work that way. You know, it really... <laughs> Same thing with, like, working with teams and stuff like that. Yeah, so. unfortunately, I mean, in our profession, it doesn't work that way. Like, if, if you do a fellowship as a spine surgeon or a shoulder surgeon, yeah, it works that way sometimes. But it doesn't with us. And it's like, you, you have to be patient and calm. You have to get the experience. You have to get the expertise. You have to get to know the surgeons and the PM&R docs. And you have, to, you have to be known within the community. And then once that happens the right opportunity has to, has to come in and then then it's going to be based on your outcomes because what's going to happen before you get inside is the referral system is going to start happening and they're actually testing the waters right and they're seeing how do you do and how are my patients outcomes are do my patients like these people and like that has got to be very very positive and then you start to have the talks and then you start creating the opportunities and at the end of the day you know a hospital it, it's a business too mm -hmm. so you have to show that you know you could hold your own and not be a financial burden to them. So Tom, do you think that you're an outlier or do you think in the next five to 10 years, we will be seeing chiropractors in these settings you know, throughout the, throughout the country? Um, I think we're gonna be seeing more within the settings throughout the country. I think right now I'm an outlier as it's in its, it's, uh, in its infancy. I remember one of my mentors um, was out of uh, UMass out in Boston um, and he was in there, he did his, uh, his diploma in orthopedics. And he was like one of the first that I knew of that was doing it. Um, and now we're seeing more and more, which is really, really cool. And University of uh, our Palmer, in Dan uh, Palmer's, uh, um, their fellowships 
that they're placing these kids in the VA hospitals. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really, really good for the residency and their rotations. And what we're doing at the University of Pittsburgh, you know, we're trying to train like, you know, these chiros and these PTs to be that primary spine practitioner, mm. right? To be that gatekeeper. Because if you look at all of other medicine, there's these primary care docs, primary internists, primary this, and they're kind of the gatekeepers for cardiology, for, for pulmonology, for this and for that. And we really don't have that in spine, right? It, it, it's a golden opportunity. Mm -hmm. Like, can we form <clears throat> a group of practitioners that could be that primary doc to lessen the load on the surgeons? Because right now, General practitioners, they don't know what to do with back pain. Mm -hmm. And what they do is I can pull out all the surgeons up here, and they'll say like they get like a ton of referrals from GPs, and they're not surgical cases. So they refer to surgery. Go to surgery. Go to see the surgeon. What is it? But they're not surgical cases. So that is, that's, that's where we belong. We belong there if this is the way you want to go with it. We belong there. We need to gatekeep that and lessen the load and, and classify these patients there and then dictate where they go. And I, I think the huge benefit, you're, there's a couple things. With, with my background of working with orthopedic surgeons too, the one thing they want me to do for them is to screen out who actually needs surgery and who does not. Yes. And I think like what chiropractors and physical therapists, they make a mistake. They're like on a case that they're unsure of kind of. They're like making that referral. Even in the back of their mind, they know they're not surgical without realizing that ortho's walking in that room like, what are you, you know, like this is not my case. Yeah. So I think like a good lesson for uh, the people that are listening and watching is one of our jobs is to vet out that next more invasive uh, service. And you will do yourself a huge service if you're giving them what's like literally in their wheelhouse, which is basically surgery. Yeah, that, that's where they want to be. They're trained professionals and they're really good at it. Mm -hmm. They would they, they want to be in the surgical suite with the patients that will respond to surgery. And in and that's saying it. that, we don't want them back. Like if, we are, if we're done with them and we're like, dude, you're surgical, we don't want the surgeon to send them back. Right. Like, we're, you know. Well, I mean, that's a slap in your face. Yeah, right? like, yeah absolutely. Like, well, I mean, what, what do you Six do? Six more weeks do of treatment. Yeah, like, I mean, God, I mean, you, I mean, that's the worst thing in the world you could do to me. He said, well, you know, Dr. So-and-so said to come back to you for another. I'm like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> we already did this. We already did this, right? Uh, and that's the another, that's another thing, like you say, like what do you love about McKenzie is like, I love that. Like you can pick you, up the non-responder. If you are a non-responder and you're not chemical, you're either one of two things. You're either brain down or you're surgical. Um, and, like, you know, that has been so true. And, like, you know, the surgeons love that. And, like, you know, now you're making the right referral. If it's brain down, like, where do we go with this patient? Do we go to a Shirley Ryan Ability Lab for the chronic pain clinic and put them in the right hands? Or are you a truly a surgical patient in which – you know, a, a 35 minute lumbar disectomy with two stitches is gonna fix all the problems and the lights come back on in 35 minutes and you have your life back. Or do you wanna do another 6,000 press ups? You know, so everybody's a little different, right? Right. But McKenzie does a really good, like, that's what I love about that assessment. It's so bulletproof, in my opinion, once you get really good at the assessment of where does this patient belong? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I can figure that, you can figure that out in three, three questions, really, you know? Right. Like, depending on where they belong. Yeah. You've had uh, a lot of experience and time with Annie at RIC. Yeah. You've you know been around that group quite a bit, so you're very well versed in the world of hurt and you know that whole chronic pain thing. Are you able to implement any of that here, or is that really not really what you're what you're here for? Yeah, it's not really what I'm here for at this point. Right. Um, what I'm here for though is to classify it. Right. All right. So it's like, even though I'm not going to sit here and try to do the, you know, the stereogenesis and this and that and treating, remodeling the primary somatosensory cortex, I'll be able to pick that out, mm -hmm. right? And now, so I put a lot of weight on myself of just like you want to make the right pathoanatomical diagnosis for a, as a surgeon wants to do, I want to make the right classification because if I classify a patient with a brain down thing and I send them there and it's really not and I miss a derangement, I look like an idiot and then I'm doing a disservice. <laughs> so like being able to pick that out right away within six visits, five to six visits and say, yep, you are not mechanical, you are not chemical, you're not surgical, you don't belong here. Hey, tell me about your social life. Here, fill out this yellow form, which we're finishing that research on. Fill out this yellow form. Yep, yep, okay, depression. Exactly. Hey, are you talking to anybody about this? Have you, you've tried physical therapy 
and chiropractic and you tried ESI, have you tried talk therapy? What do you mean, talk therapy? Have you talked to anybody about your depression that you filled out here, your anxiety? Hey, you open the, when I see a patient fill that out, they open the doors. Like that's my light to go in through the door. I mean, they're filling out these questionnaires and it's depression and anxiety and this and that. Like they're telling me I need to talk to someone. Right. Right. So I, op- I open that door and I go along with that and be like, tell me a little bit more about this. Let's try a little bit of talk therapy. Boom. Go. And that's, that's how we kind of got it. And like we have some psychologists that are here. Um, but if we really need that deep chronic pain stuff, I'm going down to Shirley Ryan. What, uh, Tell us a little bit more about UPIX. I know some of our listeners will be, you know, interested in that program. Um, what Your adjunct entail? faculty, correct? Adjunct faculty, yeah, from uh, University of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Yeah, um, there's a uh, primary spine uh, practitioner program that they're putting together, which is basically taking PTs and chiros and trying to develop them and speed them up into becoming the gatekeeper for spine care. Right. Um, it's uh, it's a really cool program. It's still in its infancy, and so we're always learning, we're always building. And of course, the pandemic hit and kind of put a little <laughs> little uh, uh, wrench in the uh, in our in what we wanted to do. But you know, we did all t- we did all online learning, and what we're trying to do is develop these PSPs and branch them out and get them into different networks and hopefully in hospital settings. You know, so with the pandemic, you uh, were able to uh, dip your toe in a little telehealth. I understand when you and I would talk. Oh yeah, yeah. a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, so that month of April, when uh, or March, whatever it was, when Midwest Ortho said we were going 100% telemedicine, we got to shut down all surgeries and everything like that. Like, you know, some of my partners are like, "Well, I can't do a joint replacement in telemedicine. Like, Lotus, <laughs> can you handle this? Can you handle this?" Like. I mean, I think there was, I think it was like 579 telemedicine visits in like a month and a half. And I was working with the joint replacement guys. Like if I could buy this patient a little bit of relief and give them a little bit of time, we did it. And I mean, that's basically what we did. And once again, don't need my hands at that point. Don't need a needle. Don't need a medication. I just need a visual of watching them move and what is happening to their symptoms. Quote unquote, hashtag McKenzie. Did it did it change you as a clinician like that experience? What did you learn from from doing all that? That talk? everybody's home is a mess like mine. <laughs> the stuff you see in the background, you know, like, oh my God. Well, you know what's really interesting though. I mean, that is really interesting. Is like you could see what people how they live. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of weird, but at the same point, you could you could see like, well, I'm asking them to do flexion rotation. But they can't do flexion rotation. So I literally sometimes have them walk around with their phone, like, all right, walk around to another room, let me see what you have. And trying to pick out different things to be creative for them to do the exercise I want them to do. And like, oh man, that's so much easier. Yeah, now you see the compliance go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the the telemedicine was great, but you're still missing, there's still something you miss out on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we were able to get the same results. I mean, the, the outcomes were the same. Um, and patient satisfaction was over 95%. They loved oh, it. Awesome. Um, and the reimbursement was the same. It was the same. It was the same, yeah. So the hospital was happy with that. <laughs> Patients were happy. Outcomes were happy. It's just like the consistency of telemedicine, though. It's like there's not like a two-minute break like you saw You know, when we were patients. We at least leave a room, take a breath, go into another room. Like telemedicine. I got nobody, somebody else in the port. Click. Next one. Click. Click. And it's just nonstop. Mm. You know, I, I mean, if I don't have to do another telemedicine in my lifetime, I'd be very happy. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I get it. I mean, and then patients get lazy too, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're like, oh, do you still do telemedicine? That was kind of nice. I could sit in my meeting or sit and watch Sports Center, and you could tell me what to do. Like, no, you come into the clinic, mm-hmm. right? What's your, oh, you got something? I was just going to ask, like, going forward, Tom, like, we're talking about mm-hmm. implementing more people into hospital settings like this and stuff. What What's preventing, uh, for happening now? Is it the, the quality of clinician? Is it the hospital systems not being as open to it? Is, has there got to be a little bit of give and take on both it's sides? Got, it's got to be both sides, I think. I like. I mean, yeah, do I think the the clinicians, like I, I do, because um, you just can't have, unfortunately, just anybody come off the street and do mm-hmm. it. Like, I mean, we're, you know, humbly speaking, like we all, the three of us in this room, like we just keep going for education, right? right? You know what I mean? It's just like, you can't just graduate and be like, okay, I wanna be in the hospital setting. Right. I think there's gotta be a little bit more to it. Mm-hmm. At the same point, I think there's some politics that plays mm-hmm. into this. Mm-hmm. And there's some reimbursement stuff that comes from the insurance level and DC level, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what's happening with Medicare? Like, I mean, 
it's a orthopedic hospital. Like there's a ton of Medicare patients. Like we want to be reimbursed if you see this patient. Mm -hmm. So that Medicare legislation's got to pass for us, which is going to be a huge thing mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of hiccups happen is like, how do we bill for the Medicare? What do we do for the Medicare? And a lot of hospitals don't think outside the box and they don't understand the law really well, or I shouldn't say that. They don't, they're not implementing it the right way. Mm -hmm. um, so I think once that gets passed, the politics should be down. And then also the relationship from a Cairo to an MD and a DO mm -hmm. and even the PT has got to solidify, right? There, I really think for our profession to go forth the way we want to see it, we have to have residencies, we have to have rotations within hospital settings. There's not a week that goes by where I'm not sitting down here at seven in the morning with the surgeons and their fellows, like learning the surgical cases mm -hmm. and reading MRIs with them and hanging out with the primary care sports medicine. That is something we don't have as a mm -hmm. profession. Well, I mean, I noticed that today watching you also, Tom, I feel like, you know, we sit through chiropractic education and we're, you know, studying a bunch of antiquated x-rays where it seemed to me like you were able to look at a lot of these MRIs and actually glean something from those that maybe wasn't on the report or that, you know, was previously told to the patient. Right. So it makes me wonder if there's not a deficiency in our profession in your ability to look at an MRI not for the reading of the MRI, but like how it's going to affect what you may be doing from a treatment standpoint, like the marriage of the image. Well, what have we said for a very long time, Brett? Like what? what We've we said a lot of things. Well, no, but like talking about the radiologist, talking about the radiologist, the radiologist that could do one. Oh, and one, yeah, put a functional spin. Put a functional spin off the image, right? right? Right. You know, and like you know, how, well, what's our functional spin? I mean, to me, it's very MDT oriented. To you, it might be a little bit more DNS oriented or a combination of the two, right? But like, if I'm seeing a patient move and the symptoms are not making sense, and they're not making sense of what I see on that MRI, like, well. The MRI doesn't mean anything at that point. But do you ever like look at an MRR finding and you almost just know at this point, like it, it's almost cursory your exam because you know this is a disaster just by, and I know you always do an assessment, but yeah, 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 blah, yeah. blah, blah. But like, do you ever look at an MRI where you're like, this is, it's not even almost, uh, an exam's almost not warranted. Like this is just. Yeah. I mean, so the big one to be, I would, I would say is like, you know, you learn in McKenzie is like, well, stenosis is like another. Right. right, but it doesn't mean that there's not a directional preference. True, we could get temporary relief. Like probably seven out of ten of my stenotic patients, I extend, and they get better, and they walk further. And people who treat stenosis all day, like that's impossible. How does that happen? <laughs> right, I don't know, but it happens. Like right. you know, and it's like, um, but we also know that when I see that image and I see that moderate to severe stenosis, I know I could help this patient a little bit. But I also know by looking at that, like, man, if these symptoms match up, this patient's going to do really, really well in a decompression surgery that's going to last an hour. They're going to get back out. They're going to be able to do whatever they want with their grandkids. Yeah, even if you do produce a miracle Even for if two you produce weeks, a miracle, like, it's temporary. Right, right. It's temporary. So, like, I'll do my due diligence from conservative management. I'll explain their findings. I'll explain that stenosis is a stagnant condition. I can't fix your stenosis. I could help you with your symptoms. I could give you some quality of life back. What are your goals? Mm -hmm. I want to be able to get off my couch, like in Troy, Missouri, get off my couch and get my next Miller Lite or Bud Light and sit back down or on my couch. Or a bush light. Or a bush light. Come on. Get and watch it. the next rodeo. Yeah. Like that's as all as I want to do. <laughs> or I want to be able to run around with my grandkids. Right. Right, so every it goes back to like what we learned in chiro school is like what are the goals of the patient, right? And like if you're up for the management too, because at the end of the day, that that case right there is it takes management. That's it's what we talk about. We're not you're not walking out of this office and like holy shit, I'm 100 percent better, you know? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's like what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. And everybody's different. Some people just aren't up for it, right? You probably you probably saw a little bit today. Is like I mean, like there's so many ways that we could have gone in some of those some of those uh, patient visits. What, what do you want to do? What's your meaningful? Well, I want to work out. Like, okay, well, go work out. Mm -hmm. Right. If you understand the principles, go do it. Well, can I do this? Sure, go do it. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't bend for it. Why not bend? Like, you know what a bad symptom is. Mm -hmm. You know, but if they don't want to do the therapy, because some of the therapy could be great. Like, I mean, I got to do this for the rest of my life. Isn't there a simple fix? Well, yeah, for stenosis, there really is. <laughs> and decompression surgery does really, really well. Really well. 
Well, today, I mean, a part of your job today was you were just offering reassurance to them, which I mean, great healers always do. Like, yes, you can go work out. You know, like you're basically giving them permission to move their body to go squat or you know whatever the run, whatever the example is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really do. I mean, that's that's a big part of things. I mean, I think a lot of patients are just afraid because they're told not to do things so often. So you uh, you got your diplomate in orthopedics. We didn't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, rehabilitation, mm-hmm. obviously MDT. Like, what what does the next five to ten years look like for Tom Lotus from an education standpoint? Like, what what are you like really thinking long and hard about right now as far as educating yourself on? Um, I need to get my diploma. I mean, you know that from knowing me. So uh, I have to have that diploma in MDT. Right. Uh, it's just not a right, good time for me right now. Right. You know, I mean, that, that like, can I hang, like, are all my friends diplomat? Yes. Can I sit down in a room and talk with them? Yes. Can I work up a patient with them? Yes. Do you learn something new? Yeah. You, they learn a ton in the diploma program. I'm not even close to being there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to go to war in the PT diploma program. Mm-hmm. I want to shed the same blood and the tears that the PTs go through when they go through the diploma. Not like a Cairo diploma or this. I want I want to do the real thing. The real stuff. I, not not that yeah. anything is fake. Not that the Cairo branch is different. But I want like those are my buddies. Like I, I want to, I want to bleed and cry the same way they did. I want everything to be exactly the same. Um, because at the end of the day, I would love to teach with the institute one day. You know, and I mean, you've known me long enough that, I mean, I like to teach. You know, I mean, somebody said to me probably about seven or eight years ago, which really, really pissed me off when it was said, but it was probably one of the best things that was ever said to me. It's like, dude, you don't even know where you fit. Like, where's your paradigm? Your paradigm doesn't fit here. What do you mean my paradigm doesn't fit? My paradigm fits. Like, it's, this is what the paradigm is. Um, but I really had to take a step back and think about like where do I belong and like that like that that break of what that that what that person had that conversation with me was it led me to open up the doors to RIC more like that's when I went internal with RIC um, that's what really pushed me into the MDT world the world of hurt world and not knowing maybe I didn't belong teaching at that point but it opened up the doors to this where I'm at now mm-hmm. and I think because of that. It's given me this position where right now, by building this branch and this division in MR, I can't go away for three months. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's offered in my contract. I negotiated it in. They'll, they'll pay for everything. But, like, you're still building. Well, you it's, got it's, kids. It's, you got a family. I mean, the family, the kids. This is in its infancy. Like, I want to see this succeed. And then once this is up and running and maybe I have, like, two or, two or three other Kairos working with me and, like, I could, like, leave for three months and the kids are in high school, then that's the right time. Sure. Right? Yeah. Why? Give an argument for why Robin McKenzie deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore of rehabilitation. He's just the coolest dude in the world. <laughs> but beyond that, like, what um, what is what is his contribution done to move everything so far forward? He was so far ahead of his time, I think, and he's fought through. He fought through so many tides that were going in a different direction and stood his ground, and the simplicity followed by the research and how the research really surmounted into saying, yeah, this is right. Um, and how many people it's affected, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, look at us now, like in this healthcare world, it's like like everybody's so dependent on the next person. Whereas Robin was saying from the very beginning, you don't need me. This is what you need and go and do this, right? Um, I, I just think like, I mean, that is just like, that's a true healer, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I remember when, you know, when, when Rob, you know, unfortunately, that's one of my biggest regrets in life is I never got to meet Mac. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate when I was going to teach at the International Conference in Denver, I was hoping to share a stage with him and, you know, introduce myself to him and stuff like that, but it just never happened because he got sick. But I made a statement to myself when he passed where, number one, I still take a half a day on the day that he passed away every year. And number two, I made a commitment saying, I'm going to try to help change my profession with utilization of what you brought forth mm-hmm. with the McKenzie world. And like that is always in the back of my mind. Like, how do, I, how do we take it to the next generation so the next generation fulfills their obligation to help heal the patient? Tell us an amazing Robin McKenzie story that people probably haven't heard. Well, I didn't personally meet him. 
But so, uh, there's funny stories. Like I know you've heard the one where like he's driving up the mountain and he sees somebody like off to the side doing. Uh, say, yeah, go further, further, further. <laughs> he right? rolls down the windows like further, further, further. further, 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 further you're further. doing great. In his Bentley, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's kind of funny. It's like you you hear those stories <laughs> and like I, I mean. I mean, it's how it affects you, right? Like, I remember driving when I lived in the city and I was parked at a, at a red light right outside of the Rehab Institute of Chicago. So, you know, the patients are coming out and I saw somebody like, you know, doing standing extensions. And just as a joke, I rolled out my window to be like, be like, further, 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 further. You're doing great. Keep going, but go further, right? Just knowing like, you know, that's something he would have done. Right. I mean, I think one of the coolest things about Robin McKenzie and the whole the whole story is I'm sure most people do know this, maybe they don't, is that him and Brian Mulligan were neighbors. Yeah, I know. I mean, they grew yeah. up with each other. Yeah. You talking about influencers in the physical medicine world being neighbors. I mean, some people would say Robin McKenzie and Brian Mulligan are the the crown of the crowns of physical therapy. Right. They were neighbors. They used to hang out on each other's farms, right? I mean, I mean that's just insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about that. One thing I've I've really taken from the stories of Rob McKenzie is like they said, like in these super conferences, like back in the day, like he would get up and talk what we're talking about, and you know, people would be like, okay, whatever. But like where he really put the lipstick on the hog, so to speak, was like when they went to see patients. And like that's when people really start to be like, okay, there is something There's something here. here. Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when you could take a patient and bring a patient up in front of a room in front of 60 people and assess them and with confidence, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Well, and then like have then the confidence that, to see him the next day. See him the next day yeah. because that I mean the first day is easy. Like, I shouldn't say easy, but like anyone can it do is. anybody <laughs> can do that. But the truth really comes out on the follow up, right? Like, how are you? But like a really good practitioner. I mean, that, I mean, I'll never forget the first time I worked a patient up in front of a room with one of my mentors, um, which I won't mention names because I probably shouldn't have done it. But like, I was nervous as all hell until he said, "What is MDT?" You have to take a step back. It's like an assessment. So what if you don't get the patient better? It's okay. I've classified the patient. Mm-hmm. So as long as you have that intricacy and you understand that, like I said, it never fails. So as long as you follow the principles and assess that patient, you should have that confidence mm-hmm. if you're a really, really good practitioner. Uh, like when I was in China and I, I, I was so fortunate, I, I got the lead grand rounds with the orthopedic surgeons. Like they brought me into their place in Nanjing, China, and we were going through these, seeing all these patients that were like literally just like laying in their beds. This patient's got a, a radiculopathy and look at this image and this and that and muscle weakness. And they're just sitting there like doing crossword puzzles. And they're like, well, what would you do for this patient? So we started to assess them. We, I would assess them in front of the surgeons. Derangement, gone. Well, what does the patient do now? Patient goes home. What do you mean the patient goes home? Next patient, army guy. Extension. Patient goes, well, the patient can't go home. Patient's got to sit here and have more acupuncture. Like being able to assess that in front of people, I think that's the, the true beauty of McKenzie. Mm-hmm. As you said it, like, I mean, lipstick on the pig. I mean, Robin McKenzie, I mean, you're going to go up there and you're going to assess. You're going to pray to God that the outcomes are going to be what you want them to be. It's like any clinician would want. Mm-hmm. But when you're on stage, it, it really puts, you know, it really puts the, the pudding in the donut there. Mm-hmm. What about the... Uh books that have influenced you not obviously i know the mdt books and donaldson's book i'm sure it would be on your the top of your list but what else like what are and it doesn't have to be uh treatment based it could be life um world of hurt mm-hmm. world of hurt that kolsky and o'connor wrote uh, really really influenced me in many different ways with treatment strategies and even personally like you know affective pain and mm-hmm. how do we relate to other people just walking down the street right um, there's another author, young uh, Pueblo, uh, who uh, talks about life stuff. I really like to read his stuff, which has been really interesting to me. Donaldson's book, like you said, McKenzie's book, like you said. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I, I, I thrive. I, I, I get attracted to more of the books on like life expectancies, like how to be a better person, how to succeed in life, how to treat people, like you know, just like. Everybody, we always say we want to treat people really well, especially as a practitioner, but like, how do you make that better? 
because I think that translates into being a really good clinician too. Right. I agree. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Awesome. What a great conversation, guys. That, was that, awesome. that went uh, exactly kind of where, where we wanted to. I think we, I mean, we, we just want to say congrats. I mean, you built something amazing and allowing us to come in here and, and see you treat patients and stuff. I think there's a reason that Rush is, is one of the best because they're, they're forward in, in doing these types of things, uh, which at the end of the day, it's for the patient, right? Yeah, it is. It which, is. which is what McKinsey, that, that was what Robin said, right? Yeah. Your patients we're, we're, have all the answers for you if you yeah. just ask the right questions. We, we are here for the patient. And, you know, and there's another thing is like, as a chiro, as a manual therapist, is like Robin would always say too, is like 33% of your patients are not going to self-treat. Mm. You know, so we have that other tool, like if we need it. Right, you know, so, and, and I, I'm fortunate, you know, you said that, like, you know, how cool it was that, I, I mean, Rush gave me this opportunity. I mean, mm-hmm. like, I mean, th- I mean, for them to see, like, how we could capture other populations, I mean, was cool. So Absolutely. I just got, I got really lucky, man. I was in the right place at the right time. We always say, too, though, like, the people, if you, if you do really good things in your life, you treat people well, good things are going to happen, and then it's up to you to kind of make those decisions. You give yourself more chances to be lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then one, the one time that you get lucky, then you, you take it. Yeah. 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 It's that hanging curveball over the middle of the plate. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's cool. You know, what's really funny, too, is like the population of physicians that we do have here, like if you met all of them, you'd be like, man, that personality, same exact personality. Everybody has the same personality. Right. It's kind of cool to see like how they all attract each other. Right. They're all like perfectionists, but understanding that perfection is very subjective. They want to be the best at what they do. They want the best for the patient. They want the best outcomes. They don't sleep. Like you know, they don't take care of themselves. Yeah. They always want more. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. They want it to be better. Mm-hmm. And every single physician is exactly the same way here. <laughs> it's like we've all they've all attracted the same personality. Well, Tom, uh, I mean, the other good thing for me doing this podcast with you, you don't always get to do a podcast with one of your great friends. So really appreciate that. It's been fun to, I guess, as a friend, one of the the great things is to watch your friend just go on and do, like, amazing things. So uh, appreciate the opportunity, and, uh, man, what a a joy. It was awesome learning from you, too, man. I mean, it goes both ways. You know that. I mean, we've had a a long long uh journey together and well, it's like, you still know, young friends it's so funny like you know we kind of come and go like yeah, yeah. with the kids and family and uh but it's like if i haven't talked to you in a month and we talk it, it's like almost like 20 years ago it's how quickly we get caught back up so yeah, remember those days in Prague? <laughs> no <laughs> no or we still like social media like we'll see something together on social media we'll text or call and like we still do that how is this happening yeah. still? can you believe they said this exactly. anyways all right oh uh, awesome Awesome. Well, Tom, thank you. Uh, you've been a huge influence on me too, and uh, all my friends. And you know, Jake Alec is, is a good friend yeah, of mine, yeah. and I mean, you you've been his number one influence. And so I've learned secondhand from you through him, which has been amazing. And then I mean, well, we wouldn't got you, MDT certified probably because, because of Tom. Yeah, Absolutely, so. I don't think there's. I mean, MDT has has Tom Lowe's to thank a ton for getting as many chiros uh, certified and through as, as as possible. So that's an amazing thing. It's yeah. it's a gift and. Uh, Let's go eat some good steak and drink some wine. Let's do it. All right, guys. Have a good day. Uh, Assess your patients and classify them. And uh, as Robin would say, they have the answers. Just ask the right questions. Don't give up on the sagittal plane too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Ten more. More reps. More reps. (laughs)